want to begin off by saying Happy Mother's Day to all of those of you who have a mother or are a mother or have performed the role of mother. Uh, Happy Mother's Day. Uh, years ago, Jameson looked at me and he said, Dad, are you like a baby mama? Or no, like a daddy mama, that's what he said. Daddy, he goes, you like a daddy mama? And I said, yes, I am. And so, you know, all you single parents out there, you, you, I think you should get both holidays, honestly, because uh, you do both roles uh, as needed, um, whatever those may be. Uh, what a perfect uh, segue into grace, uh, with the grace we've been shown by mothers over the years. Uh, grace, we've been saying, it's, it's a conundrum. A conundrum is one of those things that, Right when you think you have it figured out, you realize you don't quite have it figured out. There's always sort of this mystery riddle to it, and you're kind of like, uh, kind of like that intro video. You kind of look at this going, I don't know really what they were going for with that. That was kind of odd, strange, and it leaves you kind of thinking, I don't know what that was. That's kind of what grace does. You're not really sure what it was. And because grace is such a conundrum, giving it, receiving it, showing it, all those kind of things, that's why scenes like that scene right there from October Baby uh, always bother me. Uh, and it, basically, any kind of movie where the, the main character has this great issue that's been building throughout the entire film, it doesn't matter whether it's a Christian film or even a non-Christian film, oftentimes the climax moment or the pivotal moment, they'll be sitting, they'll, wa- they'll wander into a cathedral or church somewhere, they'll sit down with a pastor, oftentimes a priest, and They'll say a few things, and the priest will just kind of go, hmm, and then quote some Bible verse, make one statement, the music will begin to, ra- I, I cut right before the music started going up, the music will go up, the light bulb goes off, they run out of the cathedral, they go make up with or forgive whatever or make amends, and they live happily ever after. Do you realize the kind of pressure that puts on people in my profession? <laughs> Honestly, now, I'm not looking for any of you to send me an email this week that says, oh, but you did that for me. Maybe that's happened a handful of times. I get that, okay? But it only happens a handful out of the thousands of conversations that I have. Most of the time, it's like you pour into, pour into, pour into, and people go, uh-huh, and then they don't go do it. Or they're like, ah, I don't know what you're talking about. Or you just don't make a connection anywhere along the way. And so you watch these things where it's just like as if, oh, you know, you've been forgiven. You need to go, go and forgive. Oh, okay. And then they go do it. Is it really that simple? I don't, I don't think it, it, it's that simple. Uh, it's, it's very hard, uh, especially uh, when you think about the alternatives. Now, read a study this past week, and I'm going to file this under studies that didn't need to be done because we all already knew it was true. (laughs) They did a study and found that when you take revenge or see revenge happen, it sets off the pleasure sensors in your brain. (laughs) Did anybody need anybody to research and study that to find out that it's fun to see revenge happen, right? I mean, just show me a bunch of TikTok videos of somebody cutting somebody off in traffic and then getting in an accident and we all know we like that kind of thing. Now, we don't want them to get hurt in the accident. We just like it that if somebody's going to drive like that, that they realize that they shouldn't be doing those kind of things. We like getting somebody back. We like it when we have the perfect comeback to somebody who put us down. We love it when, I know we're too Christian to say it, but we love it when karma works like it should. 
You with me on this? I, I know that doesn't sound like a Christian thing to say, but, but we like the idea of karma when it actually works the way it should. Or if we Christianize it and we say, okay, God's going to get them, and I just hope I'm there to see it happen. Right? That's kind of how we, we work on it. We want them to suffer like we've suffered. We want them to know what it feels like. We want them, as we would say, get a taste of their own medicine. We love when those kind of things happen. Um, we, we like it when somebody in cancel culture gets canceled, don't we? Come on, you love it when that happens. Like, oh, okay. Mm. Oh, it's a shame. Nobody wants you anymore. Hmm. Isn't that how you've treated everybody else? Or perhaps maybe you found out that the kid who was bullying your kid years ago is now in jail, and you're like, hmm. I think we all saw that coming. Or when you find out that your ex is now having marital problems. Oh, you don't say. Hmm. Once again, did we really need a study to tell us that that sets off some pleasure sensor in our brain? I mean, we call it sweet revenge for a reason, right? And it's funny when you think about sweet revenge. There's also a song we sing in church. It's kind of the opposite. It goes something like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. There's a difference, though. We love how sweet grace is when we're receiving it. We just don't really think grace is all that sweet when we're having to give it, right? We like sweet grace when it's coming to me and sweet revenge when it's leaving me, right? That's something happens between it coming in and going out that it changes the course and texture of what it is. And that's why I watch these scenes where this person comes in and they want revenge and they're angry and they're going after that. And then they sit down with a priest or a pastor and he just says a few things and all of a sudden like, you know, I never really thought of it that way. Thank you so much. I'm going to go out and show that kind of grace. And, uh, you know, God put a whole book in the Bible about this grace conundrum of how it's easy to receive grace but really hard to show grace. Uh, It's the story of Jonah. It's a story we learn, we teach to kids about the big whale who swallows the guy. Uh, Sort of the context, the background of it is Jonah is a prophet who does what God asks him to do and speaks on God's behalf. And so God says, all right, I got a special assignment for you. You've been doing good so far, so good. You've been doing everything I asked you to do. Uh, Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the city of Nineveh, which is the capital, large city over in in Assyria. And I want you to tell them about um, the fact that I'm going to come judge them if they don't turn their act around and, and get in the right relationship with me. And Jonah says, why in heaven's name would I do that? And God says, well, because I I want you to, and I've asked you to go do it. And he says, oh, I will not. No way, no how. Now, some background on the Assyrians, just a little, if you don't know, uh, they were known for their torture and their terror of their victims. Uh, They were people, this is ancient cultures, they were people who invented some things like skinning people alive. Literally, they would skin people alive uh, who crossed them. Uh, They would have people boiled alive. Um, they would actually uh, impale people. That's where you would take somebody and you would basically drive a stake up through their body and let them hang there till they die. By the way, the Romans took that idea of impaling somebody from ancient cultures like the Assyrians and they perfected it, and that's what crucifixion was. They realized that somebody died too quickly from the impalement ideas of the Assyrians. How can we extend this out? Crucifixion. That's ultimately what was done to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on our behalf. Uh, was sort of the evolution of that that had been perfected. But back to the Assyrians. So with this going on again and again and again, think about how you would feel about 
a global terrorist of our own days. And that's who Jonah is being called to go and minister to and say, you need to go and tell these terrorists that they need to get right with God or else God will judge them. And like Jonah, we would go, you know, actually, I, I really think that you should just go on with plan A. I don't really think that we should go with, with the grace idea. And so Jonah says, they're not worth it. Uh, I, I'm not going. They're not worthy of the grace. They don't deserve grace. And that's, that's kind of the issue, though, with grace, isn't it? It wouldn't be grace if somebody deserved it. That's the very nature. And this is where the grace conundrum comes in. It's because you look at somebody and says, they don't deserve grace. Here's the conundrum. Yeah, but that's what grace is. Do you see what I mean by a conundrum? Uh, we want to go back and forth. We try to use language that sort of meets our own expectations uh, on our non-grace world, and it just doesn't seem to compute. And so Jonah says, no, I don't want to do this. They don't deserve this kind of grace. And so he's wrestling, and in the book, what you'll see is that he wrestles with the competing interests of grace. Grace that I want to receive, but the grace I don't want to give. That's what the whole story of Jonah is all about. It's about this grace conundrum. And so he tells God, no, I am not going. And so Nineveh is to the east, and so he goes to the west, and he hits, a, he hits the, the sea. He finds a ship there that is going as far across the sea as possible to go. And now keep in mind, in ancient times, a voyage across the sea was not an easy venture. Uh, extremely risky. Uh, you, never, you didn't have weather reports. You didn't know whether there was a tsunami or a hurricane out there on the horizon. You had no idea what you were getting yourself into. Ships were not that large. You're not going out here on a large, multi-hundred-foot vessel, you're going out on a very small ship, one that you'd be scared to sail to Bermuda in, or, I don't even know. I grew up in South Florida. We used to go over to the Bahamas a lot, and I don't really know. Is there an equivalent to that up here in Virginia? Bermuda's about as close as you can get. I don't know. You'd be scared to death to go. We, we always look at boats and try to size up whether or not we can make it to the Bahamas, and people say, well, on a, on a good day. Yeah, but on a bad day, you don't want to be out there in that. And then, so what you see is Jonah is willing to make a very dumb, dangerous decision, all because he wants to run from God. There's a whole side sermon just in that, because that's typically what we do when we start running from God. We make dumb, dangerous decisions when we try to run from God, and so that's exactly what he does. He gets on this ship. Sure enough, one of those storms is out there waiting for them that they couldn't possibly have seen coming, and somehow, some way, the people on board the ship who are not believers in the one true God, they have this idea that this must be the result because some deity out there is upset at somebody on this ship for something that they've done. I don't know where they get the idea from, and they're asking each other that nobody, did you do anything? Did you do anything? Do anything? They're like, no, no, no. And they realize there's somebody they've been asked. It's this stowaway who's down below who happens to be asleep in the midst of the storm, and they wake this guy up, and think what a moment this is where God comes and speaks to Jonah by people saying, hey, we all think that there must be some deity upset at somebody on the ship who's not doing what they're supposed to do. Could that be you? <laughs> we laugh because there's been moments like that where people have said similar things to us. And Jonah says, I, I have to confess, yes, it is me. And so they throw him overboard, and uh, it's his death. He literally is forced to walk the plank, so to speak. Uh, to his death, but miraculously, a great fish swallows him up and spits him out on dry ground three days later. And I'm assuming that he doesn't write this down while he's in the belly of the fish. That seems a little, that takes a unlikely story to the levels of absurdity. And so I think what happens is after he gets on dry ground, he writes down what it is that he prayed to God when he was in the middle of this fish. You know, so he gets thrown overboard, he gets swallowed by the fish. And he says this, this is what happened when I was in there. He says, in my distress, I called out to the Lord and he answered me. 
From the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you, God, listened to my cry. This is over in Jonah chapter 2. And then down towards the end, he says, as my life was ebbing away. In other words, you could just picture him. He is about to drown as this fish comes to get them. He says, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Now, pause for a moment. Why should God even listen to such a prayer? Right? I mean, think about where Jonah's at at this moment. He's running from God. He said, God, I want nothing to do with you or your mission or your calling. I'm out of here. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. And so he takes off and he goes down his own path. Why in God's name should God listen to him? Sometimes it's hard to speak. So why in God's name would God even listen to him at this point? I mean, I love the line in here where he says, my life was ebbing away. I remembered you, Lord. It's sort of like one of those things like, hey, don't say I never call, right? Remember that time I was out of gas? Remember, I called you. Don't say I never called. I called you, right? Remember that time when, when, uh, when I needed some money? Did I not call you? You were the first person I thought of. Don't say I never call, right? And come on, how can you forget when I needed a kidney? <laughs> and you're telling me I never call you. Seriously, I call you. It's just almost funny when he's like, Rem- I remembered you. <laughs> oh, so glad. Wonderful that you remembered me. And so uh, he says, um, he gets spit out on dry ground after he prays in his desperation. And he says, and what I vowed, I'll make good on. Um, I will say salvation comes from the Lord. So sure enough, he goes to Nineveh like God told him to because he made a vow there in the fish, right? He's like, God, if you just, it's one of those prayers, God, if you just get me out of this, I will, that's what he says. He says, God, if you just get me out of this, I'll go to Nineveh. And God's like, okay, there you go. And so he gets there, and all of a sudden, you ever have one of those vows, and you realize, oh, stink, now i got to go do it. So the text tells us he goes and does it, but it seems as though what he does is he, he, he says, basically, God, I, I told you I would go do it, but it didn't say anything about how I would go do it. And so he does it with all the enthusiasm of a little leaguer who's just lost a game, and he's got to line up and congratulate the other team. Good game, good game, good game, good game, good game. Jonah and Nineveh. Turner burn, Turner burn, Turner burn, Turner burn, Turner burn, Turner burn, and he's done, right? That's pretty much what the text says. I vowed I would go. I vowed I would say what you told me to say, but I didn't say anything about how enthusiastic I would be about it. I didn't say anything about giving a creative message. I didn't say anything about using any kind of inflection. I didn't say about anything about anything I would do other than I will give the message, done, checked off the box. I told you I'd go to church I'm here. What more do you want? You want me to actually listen? I didn't say I would listen. Pick up my phone, play on my phone. I just told you I would come. That's all I said I would do, right? That's where Jonah's at. So sure enough, he does that. And then he feels so confident that he's basically got one over on God on this. I I went. I did what you told me to do. I know I didn't do it good enough to have any impact. So he's like, I'm just going to go up and sit and wait for God to do something. You ever done that? Like, God, listen, I'm not going to take revenge, but I'll pleasantly stand back and let you do it. Go right ahead, God, right there. I'll even set the stage for you. I will set up the perfect opportunity, God. All you've got to do, you said in your word, leave room for my wrath. Let me back up and give you some space, God. Go to work. And that's exactly what Jonah does. He goes up on a hill just waiting for God to do something because there's no way, no how, they listen to what he had to say. However, 
Unfortunately for Jonah, they did listen, and they do repent. And Jonah gets mad. He gets real mad. And he says this, he says, isn't this what I said back when you first told me to come here? Isn't this why I tried to run away? I knew you were gracious and compassionate, God. You were slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who always relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, just take my life away, for it's better for me to die than to live. It's his way of saying, I don't want to live in a world where they get away with something like this. I don't want to live in a world where they can do something like this and not be punished. If, if, if that's the way it's going to be, God, then if you want them and you don't want me, fine, you take them. And that's his attitude. He's that frustrated. He's that bitter. I love how, though, he says, he says, I knew you were compassionate and gracious. See, Jonah knew about God's compassion. When he was in the belly of the fish, he knew about God's grace and his compassion. And I honestly think this is what he actually meant when he said, I remembered you. When I was in the belly of the fish, I remembered you. I don't think he was like, hey, God, remember? I remembered you. I remembered you at that time. I think what he's saying is, God, I remembered how gracious and compassionate you were. In the same way that uh, when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, when the prodigal son's there in the pig pen looking at the pigs, he remembers how his father treated everybody. Didn't matter who you were, he remembers how his father treated him. He's like, you know, my dad was kind and gracious even to the lowest of people on his staff. Certainly, he would at least show me some kind of kindness. I've never seen him be cruel to somebody. So he's looking back and he's remembering the kind of gracious person that his, his father was. And Jonah's in the same way. He's like, I knew. I, I knew that. That's why I, I prayed out to you in my desperation because I knew you were like that. And here's the thing. What Jonah's saying is, God, I know there are no limits to your grace. That's what I was thinking about when I was in the belly of that fish. There's no limits to your grace. There's no limit to what God will forgive. I hope you've understood that over the course of this series. When it comes to God's grace, there's no limit to what God will forgive. That's why oftentimes you'll hear me say it during a message or towards the end of a message, I'll say, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've become, God loves you. He does. And if you've never heard me say it before, let me say it to you now. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've become, God loves you. There's nothing that will ever keep him from loving you. And he doesn't love you any less because there are no limits to what God will forgive when it comes to his grace. And you can go through the scriptures and see he, he, gave, he forgave Noah of his drunkenness and the dumb things he did in that. He forgave Abraham for lying. He forgave Moses for murder. He forgave David for adultery and murder. Uh, he forgave Peter for denying him. He forgave Paul for uh, the violence that he showed and for being a fake hypocrite, you know, a religious fake hypocrite. And in Jonah, we see he also forgave Jonah for running from him. So when Jonah thinks about God's grace, as I remembered you. I remembered, I remembered that, you would, that you would forgive like that. That's why when I was in the belly of the fish, I knew you would forgive me. I knew I could cry out to you no matter what I've done. Even though I was running from you, I knew I could still cry out to you. Uh, we also, he also knew about God's limit, uh, limitless grace when it comes to how God forgives. We looked at this last week in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. It says, where our sin increases, God's grace increases all the more. There's no limit to how much God will forgive. Not only is there no limit to what God will forgive, there's no limit to how much God will forgive. It doesn't matter whether you've run once from God or your whole life has been running from God. There is no limit to how much God will forgive when it comes to your life, when it comes to your sin. And I just lost my notes, but I'm going to pull it back up. Whew, I don't know how that even happened. Um, there's some more no limits to God's grace. We'll get to them here in a second. Here we go. Um, there's also no limit to what or when God will forgive. Remember the first me message in the series on Easter? 
when does the thief on the cross pray out to, to, to Jesus? I mean, literally with his last breath, he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And right there on his deathbed, little deathbed confession, there is no limit to, to when God will end his grace. I mean, it doesn't matter how much you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. Even if it's at the last minute, it doesn't matter when. There are no limits to God's grace. And the thing about it is, like Jonah, we love the fact that God's grace is unlimited. When you finally grasp, my hope in this series is that you will grasp the unlimited nature of God's grace. That you will never have the sense that, oh, after all I've done, there's just no way God can forgive me. You would know that it doesn't matter how much you've done, where your sin is increased, no matter how much you sin, God will always forgive you of your sin. Even if you tend to abuse God's grace, even that he will forgive it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how much you've done it. And it doesn't matter even when you finally come around. There's no such thing as I'm too far gone. It's too late in the game for me. I've missed my chance. There's no such thing as that. We love God's grace when it comes to the fact there's no limits to the what, to the when, or the how much. The conundrum we face, like Jonah, is the fact that God is also does not limit his grace when it comes to who. God doesn't limit his grace when it comes to who. He doesn't limit his grace when it comes to you. He doesn't limit it when it comes to me. He doesn't limit when it comes to that person who's hurt you. There's no limit to who he will forgive. And for Jonah, he struggled with that. You and me, we struggle with that. Whether your issue is with a group of people, you know, they could be rich people, poor people. They could be you know, liberals. They could be conservatives. They could be Republicans. They could be Democrats. They could be somebody from a different country or a different ideology, a different religion. There is no limit to who God will forgive. Even sometimes in America, don't we sort of think that like, well, God forgives us Christian people, but he wouldn't forgive those people. He would if they wanted a relationship with him, guaranteed. It doesn't matter what you've done. If Osama bin Laden had turned to Jesus in the last moment before the lead entered his body and said, God, please forgive me, you'll see him one day in heaven. That's hard to fathom for us, but there is no limit to who God will forgive. And we struggle with that. Because sometimes when we think about the who, we're thinking about of a certain who. And we struggle with that who. That's why Jonah says, I knew that you were gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. You know, Jonah's not the only place in the Bible where this grace conundrum comes up. You, know, you realize this is a constant theme throughout the Scriptures? God knows you'll be struggling with this issue of his unlimited grace when it comes to who, oh, so, so much. This idea that I want grace for me, but I have struggled to show it to you. Uh, there's stories after story in the Old Testament. Uh, one of the first ones that comes up is a guy named Judah. Uh, remember when Jesus, Jesus is actually in the line of Judah. He's actually, they always call him the line of Judah. He's in the household of Judah. That's one of his descendants. If you go back into the genealogy of, Je of Jesus in the book of Matthew, you'll actually see Judah listed. More importantly, you'll see Judah listed with the story about him and Tamar, because Tamar's name's in there too. Who was Tamar? Well, Tamar was his daughter-in-law. She was married to one of his sons, and his son passed away, and Judah was supposed to care for her. And he kind of doesn't care for her the way he should. He basically leaves her out there to fend for herself. And then he gets word that she's pregnant. Everybody's go, ooh. All right, come here. And we don't know who the daddy is. Judah finds out about it, and he goes, no 
daughter-in-law of mine who was married to my son, who bears my family name, is going to get away with something like this. This girl needs to be stoned. We need to make a public spectacle of this because I'm not going to have this tarnish in my name. And then the prophet Mari comes to him and says, Judah, you are the father. <laughs> to which he goes, don't. You can read it. It's in Genesis 38. All of that is in there. You just have to look at the right translation. And this is like the cartoon version of the scripture translation. Um, and he's like, oh, that whole stoning thing, we, sh we should call that whole thing off, actually. And you might think, how could he not know that that had happened? What had happened? It all makes perfect sense. Judah's a good, upright man who was just having sex with a prostitute who he didn't realize was actually Tamar dressing up to set the whole thing up. The Bible is a lot more interesting than you give it credit for, honestly. <laughs> Fascinating story. You should read it. Similar thing happens with David, too. Nathan comes up to him. He goes, he goes David's the king. Nathan's one of the prophets in, in Israel. He comes to David. He goes, I got this issue. Something's happened in the kingdom. I wonder if you could weigh in on this, maybe put your, some authority behind it. He says there's a really rich guy within your kingdom. I had a visitor come to town, and uh, he wanted to throw a nice party for him, a festival for him. And what he did is instead of going from his own herds, he found some poor man that he could take advantage of, and he stole his one lamb, and he killed that lamb to have a feast for his friend. What should we do to somebody who does something like that in your kingdom? What should we do to this guy? And David says, oh, we got to string him up right now. we got to make an example. Nobody in my kingdom is going to do that. And then Nathan says, he says, David, you are the man. It's like, excuse me? Um, the little sheep was Bathsheba that you slept with and then had her husband bumped off. That was you. Oh. Oh. You see, we want justice for somebody else, but when it comes on us, we want grace. Jesus told stories about this. There's a story, some people call it the parable of the, unmerc or the unmerciful servant. Some people call it the parable of the two debtors. The story goes something like this. Uh, there was once a king who had a, one of his servants who owed him. Uh, and today, it was actually, it was 10 times the national debt was the number Jesus pulls out, which is crazy now. Just picture, would it be as crazy 40 years ago, 10 times the national debt? Yeah, it'd still be crazy back then. Now it's even more, it's just, as, it, it's a ludicrous number. And the king says, but I forgive you. Uh, I'm not going to make you pay it. And the guy's like, wow, thank you so much. And he goes out and he finds somebody owes him you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. And he says, you will pay me back everything you owe me. I'm going to put you in jail until you pay me back. He says, when the king found out that this guy who'd been forgiven 10 times the national debt is choking this guy out over twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000, what do you think he's going to do to him? He says, your father basically expects you to forgive in the same way you've been forgiven. That was the story that the priest was, that's one of the verses, summarized verses he was talking about there. So Jesus tells stories about this. He also even lived out this exact example. Remember the story about the woman who's caught in adultery? And they all, everybody gathers around. This is in John 8. They want to stone her. For what she's either John 8 or 4. Both of them are the women verses. I think it's John 4. Uh, everybody's gathered around. They want to stone her. What does Jesus say? He who's without sin casts the first stone. What's he doing there? He's pointing out the grace conundrum. I need grace for me. If that were me in the middle of that circle, what would I want people to do? I'd want them to drop the stone. What we've already learned from cancel culture is you want to cancel people, eventually you're going to be the person that gets canceled. You want to throw rocks, eventually the rock's going to be coming at you. And so he says, before you throw that rock, 
Think about what it would be like if you were in the middle of that circle. What if that was you? What would you want to be done to you in that moment? He's bringing out the grace conundrum. And one by one, they drop the rocks, they drop the rocks, they drop the rocks, and they walk off. Why? It's, it's the living out of the true golden rule. Do unto others as you'd want them to do unto you. So often, though, we live by the trash rule. Do unto others as they've done unto me. I always call that this trash rule. In our house, it was a trash rule. Well, they did it to me. Yeah, that's trash. That's absolute trash. We don't live by trash. We're going to live by the golden rule. We want to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, right? Forgive one another, just as in Christ your heavenly Father has forgiven you. That comes up in Colossians 3.13, Ephesians chapter 4, around verse 20 or so. Yeah, somewhere down there. Um, I know it's a conundrum. I wish I could give you one pithy sermon. I can't do it in one little segment like the priest can on TV. I don't even think I can do it in 30 minutes. I don't know. Only you know. There's no limit to what God will forgive, when God will forgive, how much will forgive. We also need to accept there's no limit to who God will forgive. Do you have limits to your grace? And if so, why? Let's pray. Father, this is uh, one of those tough places where we are forced to confront our own hypocrisy. That we desperately want and need your grace over us. We almost expect your grace to be shown to us. We presume upon your grace being shown to us by others. We just expect, demand, hope that they'll show us grace or kindness. But the reality is, Father, it is so hard for us to show that same kind of grace. Help us realize whatever joy we may get from revenge is so momentary and so fleeting and quickly fades away. It only leaves coldness and bitterness in its place. Father, help us trust your wisdom, your divine justice, to be carriers of grace and not your justice, to allow justice to be your thing and grace to be our thing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.